Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. To say that 2020 has been a challenging year would be an understatement. But to our guest today, pivoting in the face of challenge is just another day at the office. Terry John Dahl is the true definition of a self-made woman. By the time she was just 26 years old, she had already doubled the size of an industrial business. Terry still uses that entrepreneurial spirit to fuel her work today as the CEO of CAB Incorporated, a supplier of precision machined industrial castings, forgings, wind tower components, and flanges. In today's episode, Terry and I discuss how she harnessed her passions for process management and quality improvement to build her company into an industrial powerhouse plus the skills that she believes have been essential to her success. Hey, Terry, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I have not told you this, but I should. You have been an inspiration to me since we first met, and you shared a lot of your entrepreneurial perspectives, your sense of community service, and particularly your your perspective on ongoing quality improvement. So I'm looking forward to talking about all those things today, but let me start with a thank you for joining us today. If you could just take a a 30 second rundown on your background for our readers. We've already described the company a bit, but tell us a little bit about how did you get to be the CEO of CAB Incorporated? It wasn't exactly something I started out doing by design. In the mid-80s, I had the opportunity to get involved with a manufacturing company that was actually about to go under. And being young and fearless, (laughs) I thought, wow, maybe this would be something to learn about. And I was very intrigued. So I got involved with a, a company that was weak and helped turn it around. There were two of us on the management team that pretty much had to do everything. And we had three locations and shut one down and we revitalized the company and did that for about 10 years and then became shareholders in CAB in 1995 with the intention of acquiring more and more interest. And then four years later, we acquired that previous manufacturing company. So as CAB, we were able to roll it all up into one entity and when I joined CAB, we were doing three and a half million in revenues. We're now doing about 50. And there was a period of time when prices of steel were very high. We actually grew to over a hundred million briefly. And of course that 2008, 9, 10 fun happened and it's always something. What I found was that manufacturing is not, it doesn't sound real exciting, but the actual making stuff happen both here in the U.S. and around the world, is great fun to me. So not easy, but it's fun. Was there something in the background? Was there a related family business that allowed you? you I love how you just so casually say manufacturing looked like fun, right? What, what was it? And Well, it's funny you ask because I went to work when the PC came out selling computers for Computerland. And I, I knew I hated accounting in college, but I knew it. But what I found was that there was this big black hole in the area of manufacturing. So as I'm learning how to do, I I love uh, process and I love systems. And as I'm trying to figure out how to sell people computers, I'm I'm talking to them about accounting software. and, And I realized there's a big place there that I just didn't understand. 
And the more that I learned about it, the more I thought, man, this is interesting. And then when this opportunity came up with a company that was, it had been bought by a group of Greek investors at a time when they were trying to move out of Greece because they were worried that their business would be nationalized. So they bought this little $6 million uh, revenue manufacturing company in the U.S., but they didn't know how to run a small company. And so they, inside of three years, the revenues dropped to two and a half million. They got less interested and <laughs> they were going to shut it down. And a friend of mine was one of their middle managers. And I suggested, I was all of 26, I suggested that, hey, why don't we ask if we can give it a, a shot at turning it around? So we did, and we did. Yeah. We doubled the volume in, in three years and, and ended up doing that for about 10. And like I said, we ultimately bought that company. But it was just a matter of curiosity and value when you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. It's interesting. We were recently doing some attribute mapping at Thomas about people that are successful at thomasnet.com. What, what can we define in the attributes of the folks that are most successful? And the two we defined are people that get things done, that literally are relentless at just getting things done. And the other was an innate curiosity. They want to know how it works and they want, want to know why it works that way. L let me ask you something. You are a very successful leader of a woman-owned business and you're very active in and around certification around those types of things and, and understandably so. What advice might you give to women that are looking at manufacturing in a career and maybe yet wouldn't see that fun because of the perception, not the reality, but the perception of manufacturing? When you look at manufacturing, or even if you're looking at making hamburgers in McDonald's, everything breaks down into process. And the people who do good at anything, whether it's like my first job was cleaning motel rooms when I was about 13. And if you figure out how to break down that process into steps that you can do efficiently and effectively, then you're going to become the best at whatever it is that you're doing. And so when you talk about manufacturing, of course, in today's world, I can tell you some of the folks that operate the equipment and do the programming for our equipment it just boggles the mind at the kind of things that they can do in designing tooling and fixturing. It just, my head wants to explode sometimes because I'm so impressed. But manufacturing is really all about process. And when you talk about my interest in quality control, it's really about figuring out how to minimize my risk in whatever I'm doing. And whether that's making a new product or if it's developing a new process, whether it's in manufacturing or whether it's on a nonprofit board that I'm involved in. I'm always taking a look at everything and saying, okay, how can we take the risk out of this? And how can we error-proof the process? How can we make it so it can be done? It's repeatable. I, I don't view manufacturing as a big scary thing. I view it as just one of many scary things. <laughs> so... It's such a great point. It's funny. One of the first jobs I had, I, I was in college and I sorted packages for a United Parcel Service hub. And I was 18 at the time, working from five to nine at night. It was a fantastic job to have as a college student, but it was a remarkable lesson in process orientation. Yes. And the amount of, we had industrial engineers that would start every shift with us and talk about workflow and package flow. I became a process geek. I didn't even know I was one. 
And that example, Terry, and you're conjuring up another one, was formative for me. Talk a little bit more about this pursuit of continuous quality. Your slogan is relentless pursuit of continuous quality improvement. I think I can imagine where this came from, but talk a little bit more about where that initially came from and what that means inside CAB. And I can give you a, a great example in our world. When our core business back in the 80s, when I became involved, was manufacturing steel pipe flanges that would go on waterworks systems. It's the most simple connector that goes between two pieces of pipe and bolts together and it's welded on and it's like a, a round donut with holes in it. And it's, it's one of the most simple products to produce. The specification has been the same since the 50s. Requirements were, you know, yes, there was a plus minus tolerance, whatever, but Nobody cared. If they could bolt it together, it was okay. If if it was a little thin, they'd throw a, a little extra paint on it. And so back in those days, if it would sink and rust, it was probably good enough. And as time went by, in the 80s, we began to see, we were 100% domestic manufacturing at the time. We began to see things move offshore. So we began to do some of our products offshore. If you can't develop a process and a control and a training plan, and not only in your backyard, in your factory, but 8,000 miles away, you're going to fail miserably. But what we also saw, our skills in the waterworks industry, we would make very large diameter flanges that went on uh, large hydropower projects, and they might be 12 or 16 feet diameter. And that skill set was rare. So when you begin to see the the wind turbines in the U.S. move from the lattice-type towers that you see out around Palm Springs to the big tubular towers, we were were early on the only U.S. supplier of the rings that would hold those sections together. And those rings were made very much like the waterworks flanges. They were welded from big pieces of steel. And as time went by, as those turbines were manufactured, or redesigned for higher and higher electric generation and driving out cost, they began, instead of being welded, they were seamless forged rings and, and the machining tolerances became tighter and tighter and tighter. So we began to evolve with those products. And as we evolved with the wind energy market, we also realized that our footprint in China and India and Korea, and then we also distributed in South Africa, we had strong skills and engineering teams around the world that helped us get into another market, which was castings and forgings, which is highly precision machine products. So we do a lot of stuff for automotive, a lot of stuff for hydraulic. It's stuff that I would have been scared to death to do, except along because I, I could no more read a blueprint when I first got in this business and it, it was all, all like a foreign language. But now we understand what to look for. We understand which are the risky pieces. We understand what, what checks and balances to put in place along the way to protect ourselves as much as we can. So for us, as we grew the business and tried to diversify, we knew we had to get better because the whole world was improving quality systems. But if we were going to take bigger and bigger risks and tie up more and more money, we had to be able to minimize our exposure. And so that drove it was wanting to grow. And Terry, what, what does that look like today? 
how do you continue to enforce this in your day-to-day operations? Well, you talked about being a process geek. And I think that once you catch that bug and you begin to understand it, everything you pick up, you focus on that. I was involved in a very large merger with a even larger health system partner. And the difference in a $1 billion entity and a $4 billion entity was amazing. The difference in even their process control and how much more effective they can be by focusing on it. And I just became more active in a cat rescue organization, a teeny tiny little organization. And yet the same stuff applies. If you can help them take apart that process and say, okay, how can we do this? And we can serve more cats and meet more needs. It's perspective. When you look at stuff, you're solving problems. And and it's innate. Yeah, it's interesting, Terry, too. And, and I don't know if you'd agree with this. I find uh, as, as somebody who's really focused a lot on process and scaling businesses and, and working in and around organizations, I, I found that for me and so many of my peers, it was experiential. There was a spark early on, but I remember once somebody saying to me, what did you study in college? Because you're such a process geek. But it's not like necessarily there's an academic discipline that makes you a process geek. I think there are some that probably help, right? I think it's true. Those kind of people who know how to both think strategically and execute flawlessly, that stuff is is magic. Yeah. But if you take a look at the everyday person who's out there just getting by, There are, and some are way better than others, but folks learn how to get it done just because they have to. Yeah. And so over time, probably because I have this standard for for myself, I usually got to screw it up about three times before I get it right. (laughs) So, So I'm not always the most efficient at learning the lesson, but I think that as you get better and better at this, it, it becomes second nature. So Yeah, yeah. Really inspiring stuff. And I think it's, it's great for our listeners to hear this because I think oftentimes the whole idea of process and workflow and things like that can be the non-sexy part of a business. And people get bored until you get into it. And once you get into it, it is really just, and I think I'd go back to something you said, Terry, it's innate curiosity that I think drives uh, the interest and the passion there. Well, also laziness, Tony. For me, I like to say that that my ability to find easier, better ways to do things is, is in a certain part, uh, driven by my laziness. I like that. Yeah. And I, I think I share that with you. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one, Terry. Hey, shifting gears just a little bit, in our most recent Thomas survey, we've been doing these, Terry, about once a month since the pandemic hit, 69% of North American manufacturers are actively reshoring their supply chains, partially in response to the impact of COVID-19. As you well know, reshoring has been happening over the last decade or so to a greater or lesser degree, but we're clearly seeing an acceleration of that. Has this current reshoring initiative across the industry impacted your supply chain? Are you seeing some impact from this? Long before COVID, we, like you said, probably about a decade, you began to see folks talking about reshoring. When tariffs came, of course, that was one big push in that area. But here's what we've really seen. 
it's the larger manufacturers who are able to invest in exceptional amounts of capital equipment and automation back on shore. We try to work with more middle level. For example, when we're doing automotive work, we, we may be doing it for a tier one supplier to a, a Chevrolet and a GM and a, a BMW, but we're doing only a, a niche area. So we're not doing the Ford F-150 um, you know, 500,000 unit parts that are used over and over. We're generally going after just a small piece. And what that's done for us is it's this middle piece of the market where they're not going to be able to bring that smaller or medium size volume back to the U.S. and build lots of, of equipment to do what needs to be done in a lot of cases. Now, some they do. Each part is actually evaluated both by our customers and by us for what makes sense. But what I did is we added machining capability, upgraded some equipment in our Texas operation. We opened a manufacturing operation in the state of Washington to serve one of our biggest customers out there. But it's still a mix of offshore and onshore. And keep in mind, when we manufacture in the U.S., probably... 35% of what we manufacture in the U.S., it may be parts are brought into the U.S., they're added to other things, other services and processes are done to them, and then they're re-exported. So this is just one big round-the-world circle, and we take each part and figure out how it should best be supplied. Terry, based on that, that experience, what advice might you give to other international businesses that are navigating perhaps a, a slightly more complicated challenge of sourcing internationally in 2020? Any, any lessons learned that you'd pass along? Oh, yeah. And a lot of big companies learn this painfully. We had already established our legs on the ground in India long before the whole China thing blew up. So yeah. I had teams on the ground. I had supply chain on the ground. Doesn't mean it's easy, but I have transferred quite a bit there. Tomorrow, we may end up with a, a whole new world that suddenly the rules are changing again, which is my least favorite thing is as a business owner, you want stability. Whatever the policy is, just give me stability. But you have to be able to be flexible. Geopolitical change can happen. So I got to be able to move around. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, Terry, how often this subject comes up with, I, I would say, literally every single guest we have on the podcast, where they mention some some form of what you're describing, agility, being able to move quickly, to adjust, to pivot, whatever the term is you want to use it. And it, it is sort of an interesting idea that we're sitting here talking about manufacturing and agility, which I think the average person would not think of manufacturing as an agile business, but it is today and, and frankly has been for quite a while. It is. And the piece that I would love, if I won the lottery tomorrow, a really big lottery, I would build a bunch of factories. I don't know what I'd produce with them, but I would love to, to have more factories, more equipment, because some of the capabilities of the equipment that's out there these days and the levels of automation, we're not a very big manufacturer, but we have the ability to actually run lights out processes in our Washington facility if we chose. Generally, we're doing shorter run stuff, but the fact that the equipment will do it and you just turn on the machine and tell it to run overnight, 
I'm feeling like I can ask Alexa to run a part for me, and, and she probably could. It is remarkable, and this is no mystery to you, Terry. In the same survey where we captured the, the update on reshoring, 54% of U.S. manufacturers are actively adding advanced manufacturing technology at this point in time. And not new. There's nothing new about what we're describing in terms of the technology. What is new is that technology is getting cheaper, faster, better every yes. year, and it's starting to really move these industries. Think of the implications of what you just said and, and talking about lights out manufacturing. And this is really remarkable. You look at the advances in additive manufacturing and some of the different things that we're now starting to see come online. This is a remarkable time to see the impact of technology on manufacturing. I know. And the, the additive manufacturing it's been incredible to see how fast that's moving. And we've only just begun. When you're talking about precision machine castings and forgings with intricate geometry, that kind of thing, when you start talking about additive manufacturing, when they get those materials down and fast, that is going to be a real game changer. So it's very intriguing to me. I, I do think the barrier to entry on this is the capital investment. So a little manufacturer, and I would love to see industrial policy that supports small and mid-sized manufacturers be able to make those larger CapEx investments in normal times, because it's just, there's so much risk that most folks won't dive in. And so it means the big guys get in. And that that's the piece I think we're missing in the industrial policy. Here, here, I, I, I think we should advocate for that. Now, that's a good, uh, a really good example. And I want to clarify my earlier comment about technology getting cheaper, faster, better. That's a relative concept. And that doesn't mean that everybody has access to the remarkable technologies that we're seeing. There's a barrier of entry here that is still substantial. Well, and, and, and the difference, Tony, is the technology piece, the software piece, that's getting cheaper and faster and smarter. But there's still a bunch of heavy equipment pieces that got to be put in there to, to actually cut iron and steel. A CapEx piece doesn't go away, right? No, absolutely true. We touched on this earlier, Terry. CAB is, has been certified as a woman's uh, business enterprise and a woman-owned small business, but also recognized as one of Atlanta Metro's top 20 woman-owned firms from uh, 2014 through 2018. Um, what led you to pursue these certifications? And kind of a related question, Terry, what, if any, challenges did you face? Well, the top 20 women-owned businesses in Atlanta, and we actually were added to the list the last year they named was for 2019. So we continue to be in the top of that list. So I'm really honored to be in that list, and, and it's enjoyable. But the Women Business Enterprise Certification that's something where you apply to get certified and it's done by a national entity that has regional arms and it is comprehensive. So they take that very seriously and they go back through all of your corporate records and your bylaws and, and they sit down every single year to ask you what decisions you're making and how a process works. And they want to make sure you really are knee deep in the middle of your business. And for us, we actually had already most of the major customer relationships in place. But once we were certified, they were very appreciative, the big guys, some of the Fortune 50s, and they want to be able to check that box. So every year they contact us, we'd like to see your certification. So that counts. And the other thing is, is that there's been a handful of cases where 
we weren't getting any attention at a new account until they learned we were a, a, a women's business enterprise. And then suddenly they were willing to do a plant tour. So you have to perform. Getting in the door, at least you sometimes it cracks it open a bit. You got two or three tips for other women that, that own manufacturing businesses but have not yet gotten them certified? Yeah, I think now that it's electronic, it's a bit easier. <laughs> Mostly it's going to be about record keeping. They're going to want to see your minutes and, and, and any of your corporate resolutions and stuff. They're going to want to see all of it. So one of the things we had done over the years was had moved everything onto um, SharePoint online or into the cloud. One of the initiatives that I tried to do in the last probably five years, it seems like only yesterday, but is to push as much of our stuff onto either servers, so it was digitized, or cloud. And I, I prefer cloud because that's actually far more secure than anything we can manage in-house. It actually is, yeah. But we have pushed a lot of our paperwork online. And what that helped us on the COVID situation is my people can be anywhere and do their work and I had been pushing for that for years, largely because being an international business, there's a lot of us who were need to be available around the clock. So, yeah, it's interesting. Over the last, gosh, about four years, uh, Thomas has been a online only company since the early 2000s. But we went 100% cloud over the last uh, three and a half years. And Terry, honest to gosh, I, I think about this regularly. People who are watching us think we saw this coming. Of course, we didn't. But our ability to be agile, to pivot quickly, to go 100% remote yep. operations with all the functions of our business and not miss a beat, had we not made that investment over time, and it took you know four years, we didn't do it overnight, the, the level of security you have through you know advanced functions out of AWS and other areas is really remarkable today. And boy, can we see it, Terry, in our customer set of the companies that haven't made the move you've made. They're really struggling right now because reality is industrial sales and marketing is going through a digital transformation. It's being accelerated by the pandemic, but it was starting to go through this transformation. All the pandemic's done is just accelerated the heck out of that. But it was a generational change. We were waiting for people to retire before we got away from some of the oldest systems. And now what was the small remainder of folks who hadn't changed were pushed there with COVID. So that might be the only positive thing out of 2020. <laughs> uh, yeah. This conversation is was exactly what I knew it was going to be. And I've got two more questions for you. But before we pose the last two questions, I'm going to already ask that you come back and share some of your insights with our listeners, because I, I think you've got just such a unique look at the world and particularly around manufacturing. And at Thomas, we are huge advocates for helping to share the reality of what manufacturing is, not the perception that the average person believes it to be. Yeah, in the trenches. Yeah, you really live that. And I think it's just so cool. From one process geek to another, as the CEO of a very successful industrial business, talk to us about and share with the, the listeners how do you set your day up for success? Are you someone that's got a whole structure in terms of the way you no. organize yourself in your day? And I can tell you my number one rule is to get enough sleep. Because for me, I have found when I was younger, I used to, 
totally burn at both ends. And I would just um, go, 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 go. And then I would get sick or occasionally, but generally I was, I was bulletproof and invincible according to me. <laughs> but as I got older, I realized that if I didn't get good sleep, I was not thinking as clearly. You know, you see kids who go spend all weekend out partying and then they drag themselves in and it's not until Wednesday morning that they're really <laughs> back to 100%. So I I realized that if I got good quality sleep, I was so much more effective. It it might take me 3 hours to do something that would take me 8 hours if I, if I hadn't had good sleep. So I call it honoring my circadian rhythm. Smart. That's a first thing that I've done. The other thing that I've done in recent years is I'm actually more selective about which community activities I get involved in. So I have become more balanced. I do enough to keep me energized because doing multiple things actually helps me get new ideas for my business. I've tried to balance just a bit more. And I took up oil painting about 10 years ago and I hadn't done any this year, but I do love that feeling. So I've tried to find a bit more balance. It feels like the brain cells work better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, the science is irrefutable and it's interesting. I, I share your journey there a little bit. I know at various stages of my career, we used to pride ourselves on how many miles we were flying in a given year yes. and how many countries we were visiting and how little sleep we were getting as though this somehow was a badge of honor and we were going to get great things if we demonstrated this. And I look back in stages of my life as I was coming up as an executive, I wasn't as productive as stages where I made a conscious effort to do both what you just described, to make sure I was taking good care of myself, but also selectively a better job of saying no. Terry, if you could put one sentence on a billboard that best expresses your personal philosophy, what would it say? Well, I was given a plaque from my, my mother who passed 20 years ago, but I was in school and doing this office automation thing at the same time. She gave me a plaque that said, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. And I did not realize just how much that was who I was, but that is who I am. For me, I love to solve problems and that goes to my curiosity. And so it's, it's all about some days I want to rest, but most days I want to just have you bring it on. To learn more about Terry John Dahl's perspectives on business resiliency, community service, and her work at CAB Incorporated, please check out the links provided in the show notes of today's podcast. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps us connect with and inform more professionals across the industry. Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com updates.